I'm Lalith from the Potterfic Weekly Forums. For May 27th, 2007, this is episode 15 of Potterfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey Ron, the next time you're freaked at me for calling you out on the Quidditch pitch, just remember that. And welcome back to Powerfic Weekly. I'm Ryan. I'm Lady Chi. And I'm Phil, coming to you through the magic of pre-recorded voicemail. And we should probably explain, Phil really wanted to be here tonight. I mean, very, very badly. He flew in from the Philippines. His luggage kind of went off of its own path. His son washed his iPod in the washing machine. Phil, Phil tried really, really hard to make it here, but he wasn't able to make it. So I'm, I'm driving home today from work, and I, I get a call on my cell phone, and it's Phil. And he wants to let me know he had so much to say, and he felt so bad, you know, leaving us in the lurch. He sent us, you know, a voicemail with his with his thoughts, and... uh she, do, you, do you have a count on uh, on Phil's voicemail? Do we have a time count on? Um, I, I believe it's like 43 minutes long. <laughs> Phil has a lot to say. <laughs> yes. And my first thought on it was, ooh, that's going to be kind of hard. You know, just one guy talking for 43 minutes. And the more I listened and the more I thought, like literally the guy could do stand up. And I think it's going to be the best part of the show. Beautifully put, Ryan. Thank you very much. And I have to tell you, after that, after I talked to Phil... And I talked to everyone else. My phone was Grand Central Station today. I I spoke to Jen, who was also, you know, sorry she couldn't be here tonight. And when I mentioned that we weren't going to be discussing the, uh, shall we call them the R-rated? Uh, we'll just call them the R-rated outtakes. The R-rated, yes. you know, some of them, <laughs> NC-17-rated outtakes. She was very upset as she feels, you know, number one, that they're the best parts of After the End. <laughs> she and, would. I love Jen. <laughs> and number two, she doesn't find them risque enough. She, she thinks they could have gone further. I have to tell you, too, I, I went to lunch with a friend of mine at work, and I had Perfect Weekly on in the car. It was on my iPod driving into work. It gets me through my traffic. And she was just listening to it. And it was the part where Jen was explaining the plan in the <laughs> Jen could really have a following, even if you've never heard the fan fiction. I just have to tell you that. People were yes. telling Jen. It was pretty That's because just it's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> You know, this kind of takes me back to, you know, the last time you and I did a podcast together, I was deathly ill. You had Do you mono, remember this? You had mono, I had mono. <laughs> and it was like 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and you were yes. you were literally like dying by the end of it. I think it was like episode five or something like that. Yeah. We had we had done two chapters, and I think I begged you to stop. You, <laughs> like, that sounds so bad. <laughs> like, I was going... I, I would really like to do another one, but I have to take medication, and I need to sleep. <laughs> and it was so bad, too, because at one point you like said, hold on, hold on, and you covered the mic, and you coughed louder than I've ever heard any human being <laughs> cough, and the noises that were coming over that mic were just, they were frightening to me. And then my response was, can we do one more chapter? We're almost there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we have a great deal of love and concern for each other at Potterfic Weekly. <laughs> Memories. 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 You're, you're, star- you're starting to actually be recognized for um, being on Potterfic Weekly. It's it's interesting. 
It is interesting. I got a um, for those of you who don't know what what Ryan and I are talking about, which should be everybody because it's fairly recent event. Um, uh, I got a review at phoenixsong.net from Mrs. Jenny Potter, and if she's listening, hello and thank you very much for reading Discovering Lily. Um, that mentioned that she had recognized my name from the podcast, so we are getting it to be a big deal, maybe <laughs> to one person. <laughs> I'm actually thinking for those of you who are going to be at the Union Square uh, book release party for Deathly Hallows, I'm thinking that everyone who's there from Polarific Weekly should wear, you know, special t-shirts and see if we get recognized by, like, you know... I'm person. thinking you probably will. I'm thinking I, rec- I will, yeah. I got recognized at the uh, at a Harry Potter release party in Overland Park last time when Half-Blood Prince... Yeah, somebody knew who I was, so... You felt very important for the rest of the day, didn't you? I did. My friend um, Risa was with me, and she took every opportunity to pop my ego. That after that, she's like, "This is for your own good." <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get to uh, tonight's outtakes and our final thoughts of after the end. Uh, Chi, do you, I believe we have a email to get to. We do have an email to get to, uh, get to. This comes from um, Free Winky, who is a member of our forums. Free and <laughs> hello, Free Winky. Um, we're sorry we missed your comments um, last podcast. Um, we're going to blame that on Ryan. We are. And <laughs> um, four-hour had- editing job turned into eleven. I just didn't have time to comment. I apologize. Yes, yes. Um, poor Ryan. Um, but I'm not going to read all of your email, um, but I am going to hit the what I thought were the highlights. In chapter uh, 37, which is called Blue Moon... Uh, <laughs> I think we all know what chapter 37 is. <laughs> I am not singing. Right. <laughs> um, you mentioned a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Um, that the spells like Prescribus Totalis and Transferro Prescribus reminds you of the, sm- the spell used in the third movie, um, Prisoner of Azkaban, um, Arresto Momentum, which is an interesting point. Um, she also mentioned that uh, it wasn't until you had read this chapter that you realized the relation between the rat in Ramus's shed just before his transformation and his memory of the day Peter Pettigrew was captured by Sirius, Ramus, and Snape. And throughout your email, you keep referencing um, how they... Um, will use things to trans to um, uh, what do you call it transition yep. to transition from one thing to another and that's a very um, an interesting observation as well um, in chapter 38 beleaguered by halfwits um, you commented on um, our 35 minute discussion on whether Jenny Weasley is running for Minister of Magic or not um, which was, um, you said, sometimes it is easy to leave your decisions for someone. Not like in Jenny's case, but it is the easy way out to avoid confronting your own fears. It's very, it's a good observation, I think. I keep saying it's a good observation, but they really are. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, That's your line of the night. That was a good observation. Yeah, I'm going to like, it's going to be like, Jens, come on down. Phil, what do you think? I completely agree. Arthur Weasley is a minister of magic. In canon, the introduction of Arthur Weasley is almost funny. By the time of Order of Phoenix has come up, he is a bit serious. But here, as Ron sees it, Arthur Weasley has a, quote, quiet voice, unquote, that, quote, always gets an answer, unquote. Wow. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of quotes. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I was trying to decide whether I was going to do that out loud or not, but I figured that in the interest of um, literary honesty, I would. Good choice. Uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, 
I was going to say, good observation again. Okay. Then, okay, <laughs> this is funny. Um, Harry's feelings for Jenny, first a source of the, his Patronus and then a cause of distress. And now that Marvoy is arrested and not around Jenny, thank God he is relieved that Jenny, and Jenny is again a source of his Patronus. How much more clear can it be to Harry that he loves Jenny? And All I can picture is you are the source of my Patronus. My Patronus. <laughs> yeah, she brought that up and she went, ha ha ha. I drive into a gas station and Free Winky says, ha ha ha. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I forget to play your comments for one episode. <laughs> nice. Okay, and then one last thing that I wanted to hit in her email. Okay. Is this um is the following thing? Uh, there's the, the fight between Harry and Sirius is the most event awaited event on my side. I think it is absolutely brilliant that A and Z brought in this dynamic between Harry and Sirius. Not only does Harry get a chance to inadvertently express all the worry he has been facing for Jenny and Sirius, he also... Also, Sirius is more like Harry's elder brother than godfather. There's this kind of mixed relationship that I have read about in many fics, you know, godfather, friend, brother. Yes. I agree on that. I think a lot of fics will really just take serious and turn him either into, you know, the ultimate godfather, or they'll really just tone him down, and he'll be like the quasi-Dumbledore of the fic. He'll be like the all-knowing right. guy who can save everything. I think it's really important that A and Z captured the fact that he's probably more screwed up than Harry is. Well, they don't they don't simplify yeah. serious, which is the, the nice thing. Um, yeah, it's the nice thing about it. They have layers to everyone. I, I really want to get into that when we get into the outtakes tonight. They have even Rose. Layers mm-hmm. I, I miss Rose. We're never going to see Rose again. Rose is done. There's only so much Rose. Oh, I miss you, Rosie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of housekeeping okay. before we get to the outtakes this evening. We are obviously done with After the End after tonight. Next week, we have the interview with Arabella and Jenya for everyone. And then the week after that, we're going to jump into our second Polarfic Weekly Fic, which is going to be, as we've said before, uh, The Seventh Horcrux by Melinda Leo. We'll be discussing that fic for about seven episodes or so, and then uh, we're going to break for the release of Deathly Hallows. We're going to have a summit in New York City where the Polarfic Weekly crew will be doing a live-to-tape podcast. We're going to basically stay up all night, read the book, gather around the coffee pot, and just talk about everything we just read in Deathly Hallows, and we're going to release that for everybody. And then after that, we're going to be moving on to some other types of uh, fan fiction we're obviously covering very uh, canon-esque fix to start with, with, you know, the, the canon ships and, you know, very, I'll call them Rowling-esque, you know, plot lines. These are things that you can actually picture J.K. Rowling writing. We're going to try and move into some different areas. One thing we want to do with the show is really touch upon many different layers of the fandom and many different types of storylines. And we hope everyone else is going to come along with us uh, if they've stuck with us so far. Uh, we're going to come back to more, uh, you know, Rolling-esque stories, you know, in the coming year. But we want to get into some different areas and kind of push the envelope a little bit and experience some fix that personally I haven't even read yet. We're most likely going to go from The Seventh Horcrux to uh, a fic from Aspen called A Year Like None Other, which is, I think, how many chapters is that? It's like 96 it's chapters? It's 96 chapters long. We're going to break it down. We're going to do more chapters a week than we've been doing now, or else we'd never get through yes. with it, uh, which is uh, a fic which centers around Harry, Snape, and Draco. We, and we also want to try and get into some other uh, non-canon ships. We want to try and get into Harry and Hermione. We want to try and get into some characters that you would never read about, um, you know, in Joe Rowling's novels, but are the road not traveled. This is, you know, 
other authors' interpretations of these characters, and we want to find the ones who do it extremely well and respectfully, and we want to really get into that and discuss that, because, you know, it's going to be boring if we read, you know, 17 different versions of Deadly Hallows every week. Exactly. Yeah, and obviously there's some limits. I think we've made our thoughts on male pregnancy clear. Uh, (laughs) Probably not going to happen. Probably couldn't no. happen. If it could, you know, Ryan at PowerFakeWeekly.com, you know, send me a line. But uh, just to let everyone know, those are the directions we're thinking about. We hope everyone comes along with us, and we're just looking for some very uh, sophisticated and some very in-depth discussion of a lot of these areas that maybe not everyone you know, feels comfortable in, but maybe they'll come along with us. So right. just to give you an idea of where we're going with the show. I think we really just want to hit the most... Uh, high quality fan fiction regardless of ship or plotline as we possibly can so that's at least my interpretation of Potterfic Weekly's mission statement so <laughs> we have our a mission un- statement our, un- our unstated mission statement <laughs> our mission statement which has not been stated yes okay uh, that's I- what I gather from you Ryan there you go fearless I am the head of Potterfic Weekly right. our headmaster there this is Which true. I had never thought of being dirty until Kate said something. Oh, God. <laughs> I was like, it never occurred to me, but okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> we are going to be discussing five uh, outtakes this evening. Three of them by Genia, and two of them by Phil. Who, Yay, Phil! I believe in his 40-minute voicemail, uh, did not want to discuss his outtakes. He's referred to them in the past. He's very hard on himself, as is Genya. So um, I think he believes they're other crap. Yeah, I guess that did suck. Which I believe is other crap. So uh, I can't really wait to get to those. So why don't we start actually with uh, Genya's outtakes? You want to start with Genya's? Okay. It's Genya. We had an entire I'm discussion sorry. on this. I know. You know what it is? I'm from the Midwest, and that is not a sound I can produce. You cannot produce the sound je. Je. Genya. Is that how you say it? Genya. My goodness. I'm such a lame person. See. Why did it do that? That's stupid. Okay. We're going to start tonight with an outtake by Genya, which is available um, on the Sugar Quill, and we'll put the uh, links to all of these outtakes uh, in the show notes to tonight's episode, which is available, you know, in the file itself or you can visit powerfickweekly.com and we'll put them up there uh it is called okay sorry the first um outtake is called tell him about it which features mick and rose yes and as i was just saying i felt so bad with it ended because there's no more rose and i gotta tell you i was a rose fan you were a rose fan you know how um jen would leave her husband for ron mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how do you feel about rose and danielle <laughs> Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown. It has a ring to it, I can tell you. And, you know, that clipboard, you know. (laughs) Check that one off the list. Okay. (laughs) Luckily, Danielle is listening to these episodes, you know, way, way after they're released. Like, weeks after they're released. She's falling behind. So by the time she, you know, listens to this one, hopefully we'll be married with three kids. (laughs) How many years away is that now? She's really behind on these things. She's a very busy person. She's extremely busy. Oh, I don't doubt it. I know um, I know what, what she's been up to, and, and I got to chat with her on the phone the other day, so I don't doubt. That, Did you really? Uh, 
Yeah, you handed the phone over. That's then. true. You, I was there. I, right after I said that, like you were there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now, I, I do want to uh, say one thing. The interview next week with Arabella and Jania um, obviously hasn't been released yet. It has been recorded. It's a great interview. I can't wait to release it. It is possible that Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown may make an appearance in that interview. All I'm going to say. Oh, nice. All I'm excited. I'm going to say. <laughs> Okay. All right. So let's um, talk about the outtake. Let's talk about the outtake. Let's get down to business. One thing uh, that jumps out at me, and I'm going to cut you off there because if I don't, I'm going to forget to say it. I absolutely love the fact that this outtake, you know, like you, you start reading it and the first thing I thought was, you know, these characters kind of all, you know, it's just, it, it gets you into the mindset of the character. The writing is just so crisp. It gets you into the character so well that, you know, when Rose is in the store and she's trying to duck her mother and Lavender... I just love the fact that her name is Lavender. All these books later, I still love the fact that the character's name is Lavender. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. I just wanted to comment to the fact that the girl's name is Lavender. I digress. Oh if you're listening to this and your name is Lavender, email hate mail to com. All right. <laughs> You love that her name is Lavender and Is that all you wanted to say? That's really uh, the only thing I have to say about the story. Of course it's not all I have to say. We're up late at night doing this. Of course I have to All right. All right. When you look at this, these characters are just you know so in depth that you they you you really feel like you're inside the person you know experiencing this. They 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 just the details that they manage to pull out of these characters makes them seem so real. You actually almost feel like this is a person whose life, like I said last week, will continue after the one shot's over. They're, you're just catching like a glimpse of their day, but the day will continue after the cameras are off. One of those types of things. And I love the fact that even in this fic, they reference the fact that Rose has an ex-boyfriend who she's comparing Mick to. Mm-hmm. There, there's yes. a history there. This isn't, you know, Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown, who was born with a clipboard in her hand, who has no feelings, who's, you know, the snarky, you know, Rinna kind of character, you know, who always has a great one-liner and is always, you know, prime for work. This is a person with feelings, who's had screw-ups, who, you know, has issues with her sister. She loves her in small doses, you know, right. never got over the fact that her boyfriends weren't accepted by her parents when Lavenders were. Just, I'm reading yeah. this, I'm like, I like Rose so much better, and I loved her before. It's just, they really just do these characters very well. You, you know, the more layers they add to them, and the more background story we get that's kind of casually mentioned, I think the more we can really sink our teeth into the story and enjoy it as a whole. And um, it's, it's certainly no exception in this one shot by Genya, so Wilson. <laughs> and um, I think that um, that if you have not read anything by Arabella, by just Arabella, and you've not read anything by just Genya, then um, maybe you'll miss this. But I think that um, she she stays in the style of after the end, but um, it's definitely Genya. It's definitely her style. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What? What? Because uh, I'm curious. Because we actually touched on this in the interview a little bit. How would you define Genya's style? Genya is not so much concerned with where people are and what people are doing. She's much more concerned about what people are feeling. I would say. Okay. And um, her sentences aren't as Arabella can has this tendency to write like you talk. 
one sentence, but there's a thousand and one clauses. And, <laughs> right, like I talk. Know, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, Xenia is more inclined to... Sirius um, Black was standing on a rock. Exactly. That's more Xenia style. <laughs> Listen to the you interview. Know? <laughs> <laughs> like, am I hitting on the things that Xenia would say about the differences between her and Arabella's writing? I, I'm pretty sure. Oh, no, you're completely but, off. You're completely off. No, just kidding. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, too. And it, it's really funny, because I got... We actually uh, interviewed them... Genya first exclusively and then Arabella with Genya in the room so it was actually funny because we did them at two different times I got to you know say well Arabella this is what Genya says and they were she's like what she said what and it was hilarious (laughs) it's pretty much the same thing in in that you know Genya's style is much more um, much more simplistic and it's actually interesting because if you think back at our favorite points of the fic you know we always stopped and said I love this short declarative sentence and I really feel as though Usually, that is something that I'm just guessing is something that that, that came from Genya. You know, even like when we look back at last week's episode, you know, light, mm-hmm. like one, like one word, light says better than you know any of my sentences, which are still rambling on somewhere, you know, in in the cosmos. Right. But, yeah. I mean, so it's yeah. So this is you know Genya minus the Arabella. This is Genya, you know, exclusively. But I do still, like you said, I sense a lot of after the end in here. I feel like I'm reading like a branch of after the end, something that doesn't right. really concern itself with the story. But you know, it's in the same universe. It's in the same, same basic style. You know, same narrative, um, feel. Yeah. And um, yeah, I um. There's just a you can tell that um, there's just a lot of really good in this particular fic. There's a lot of really good emotional details balanced out by physical details. You know, she's um, kind of how do I want to say this? Like, you know, she's listening to her mother and she's kind of experiencing talk about you know her inability to attract men. <laughs> And, you know, while that she's dealing with the emotional process of that, she's also, you know, looking at wine-colored, whatever it is. I just, wine-colored popped out at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, garment, looking at, you know, looking at the cloaks and things. And um, so, you know, we can, we don't have as much physical details, but we have enough to where we can kind of keep track in our minds of where people are and what they're doing. And, yeah. yeah. Um, can I just say... Mick, his character mm-hmm. is just in this this um, story. He's not as um, flip as um, light and intense and Fred and George esque as he kind of is in After the End um, itself. He really has some good serious moments in here. And uh, oh, I not- don't know. I think his impersonation of a house elf definitely counts. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know. I, I, I thought that whole scene... And I'm, I, Here's the thing. When you're reading an outtake, my first question is, why wasn't this in the fic? Why is this... You know, with After the End, I mean, they, they put everything in After the End. I mean, they, you know, mm-hmm. they almost had a perspective from the mailman. I mean, everything was in After the End. So the, right. to write something afterwards, obviously, this was the storyline they never really touched on. They never really did anything from Draco's perspective or Rose's perspective. So there were perspectives out there that were, that were abandoned. Um, you know, Rose definitely being one of them. 
but yeah, yeah, it's the, the the scene with you know lavenders on the flu, and and Mick is pretending to be the, you know the house elf who's afraid of water, just to put Rose in that situation. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 what I gathered from the story is that Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown isn't the stuck-up snob who's got a clipboard in their hand, and I knew that by the end of After the End. I suspected it all along, but you, you knew that by the end of After the End. But it was really mm-hmm. nice to just get into that character, yeah, and, and really show it. I agree. When Rose, you know, meets Lavender, you know, for lunch, number one, I just thought, I can never picture leaving my office at lunch, going out, getting drunk, and then coming back. Maybe it's a no. European thing. America, frowned upon. Just throwing well, that I mean, they, they, they don't take drinking alcohol as, as seriously as we do. I don't think that they... I mean, I've always been told by, in you know... Amy, you can back me up on this, but it's not as big a deal for people to be drinking wine with meals, and it's just kind of commonplace there. So I, I didn't know that she, I didn't necessarily read in that she got totally smashed, but maybe I missed it. She drank half a bottle of wine. Amy, of course, being our our, our listener from England, who's a who's a very uh, prominent member of our forum, uh, definitely. Uh, Email us and let us know, you know, what you think. You know, wine, lunch, do they go together? I don't know. That one thing that, you know, so much in this fic. I'm, I'm thinking about the wine. I don't know. Um, I like the fact that we got into, you know, Lavender and Seamus. What I really loved is they have a puppy. That somehow just Aww. completes the whole thing. They have a puppy. That's so cute. They spiked the punch at the Quidditch games. Mm-hmm. There's this whole world going on with Lavender and Dean and Seamus and all of these characters that are like the guy in the background while Harry and Hermione are talking. It just right. really it flushes out this world. Like you could write after the end in that universe forever and non- never run out of stuff because there's so much. There's so many characters. Yeah, it's such a wide and diverse canvas to play around with, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit like canon in that you know there's so many. You know, it, it does kind of flesh out plot lines a lot differently than um, the series does. You know, it's certainly a lot more in depth, but th- it has this this feeling of canon to where there's enough little streams going off in different directions that you could just follow one forever. You know, like in canon, the Ramus Tonks relationship, we don't get to see mm-hmm. that, but the Mick Rose relationship, like. In one chapter, as I recall, like in one chapter, they were just dancing with each other, and like four or five chapters later, they were married. Yes. And it was like, how did that happen? We all knew it was you know? going to happen. Yeah. He but, called her Miss Rosie, and you knew that was it. That was it. That was yeah. It. I just love that he calls her Rosie. That melts me every time. I I'm just like, have, to, I just have to tell you, though, George, Madame Rosmurtha, I can't feel as though we got enough closure on that, and I would appreciate an outtake. <laughs> me too. Genya, hear me? <laughs> I wanted George Rosmer to outtake. She used to be like the 60-year-old woman from South Africa who just had twins, but... <laughs> with red hair. With red hair. With red, with red hair. One thing I just want to say, that was obviously, you know, Rose has some communications issues. She has a little bit of difficulty, yeah. you know, dealing with dealing with Mick, and unfortunately she decides to freeze up around the time she's supposed to be screaming, I love you, I love you, take me. So... Yeah. That that produced <laughs> love me, kiss me, make me a woman. So unfortunately, you know that. You alright? No. Okay. I'm okay. We can wait. I'm alright. I'm alright. Okay. I'm okay. 
You all right? Yep. Okay. You're going up. <laughs> Leave it <in> there. <laughs> all right. We're good. We're good. Okay. <laughs> you know, so obviously a little... You all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm oh, just oh, yeah. chuckling. You're... It's a little, it's just a little chuckle. It's just a little chuckle. A little slipped out there. Then okay. <sighs> so we have, you know, obviously, <laughs> oh, doing it. So, so you know, okay. So we have, you know, Rose has some difficulty, you know, with Mech. She needs lavender, and I love the fact that lavender. You have to. One thing I jumped out at me too is I'm breathing, you know, throughout the fic and obviously this outtake. You know, seven months ago, Lavender was marched out of the Great Hall to her death in the final battle, and now she's a beautician, and, you know, she's got a puppy, and, she, you know, she's concerned about, you know, nails. And make, I, I just love the fact that, you know, seven months ago, this character's life was hell. In a few months' time, she's going to be kissing Seamus goodbye at Azkaban as he tries to, you know, go into the Dome of Death. And... <laughs> Dome of Death. Dome. <laughs> we have an acronym for the Dome of Death. You know, I just like the fact that even Lavender, who I never liked in the canon, Lavender even to me feels like a fleshed out character who loves her sister. And I love the fact that she's like, you know, I love you, you're perfect, never change, but you scare the hell out of me sometimes. I think other people do too. And I think yeah. other people too. I just think that, you know, it's just, I just can't say enough about how deeply layered I think these characters are. And, you know, Rose obviously goes to. Azkaban, and she decides, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to make a flow chart to explain my feelings for Mick. And the thing I have to tell you mm-hmm. is uh, when I started dating Danielle, I did, the yeah. same, I did the same thing. So, Oh my goodness, Brian. <laughs> well, I didn't make a flow chart. I, I wrote a letter which was misinterpreted, and there was some fun stories ask me later so long story short i feel very close to secretary privy rose gay brown just thought that was hilarious i love the fact where you know they're, they're you, you're going between the numbers i love that there were 87 with the x because yes apparently 87 whew, that's big at the sugar quill 87's big there i can't figure out why but 87's big there and i love number eight that you know he you know what's number eight you're a gryffindor He's like, even though I'm an arrogant Gryffindor bastard and Rose cringe, that had been number eight. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's so true, but it's it, it's 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 very bad. Yes. Yeah, I, I just thought I, I just thought there was so much humanity in these characters. I. Uh... Yeah, I love how flawed she is. She's you know she's brittle, but she comes across as brittle. But she's very when she makes herself, she can be soft, you know, and that's. Yeah. You know, it's just another side of it's nice that not all women are portrayed this way, you know. And she's not a nice queen. She's just yeah. a flawed character. So that's that's really nice. And and I do feel for Mick and I'd like to close off my thoughts on this outtake by saying that when, you know, Mick put Rose and the Dragon, you know, in front of him and and and, and she asked, you know, why are you putting him here and he, <laughs> Heat. He's like, because that's the way the flames can get you. <laughs> and yeah, he explained that you're my heat shield. I said, you know what, man? That's true love. <laughs> exactly. I'm willing to sacrifice you. <laughs> okay. So, anything else you want to say about... Um, oh, Rosie again. Um, anything else you want to say about this outtake? Anything else I want to say about this outtake? I like the fact that one of the themes I just always thought was cool is you pick the time and I'll pick the place. Yes, I think exactly. It, I think it would have worked out better for her if, you know, she picked the place and he picked the time, but you know what? Whatever. 
she's like, how about now? I just love how around him she can find herself being capable of spontaneity, and that's nice. So This is true, too. And I was laughing in the beginning when Lavender was commenting that they should get, you know, Rose a book. All I could picture was Jen screaming. Every time Hermione has a birthday, they give her the Encyclopedia Britannica, like an abridged version. Yeah, that I was just like, I'm just going to say that Jen probably has a book that she could borrow. There you go. <laughs> Knowing Jen. I love you, Jen. We love you too, Jen. And if you're listening to this right now, you're chiming in, screaming, why aren't they talking about the sex yet? I know, I know. I'm sure, I'm sure that Mick and Rose have had are having sex somewhere right somewhere now. at some point on the dragon that's all I'm gonna say on the dragon <laughs> how uncomfortable you know that just that would just be really uncomfortable it's like riding what la love scene like on the back of a horse oh you want me to stop no i'm picturing it okay the shrieking shack another wonderful outtake of after the <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> All right. Now that we've uh, yeah, embar- after I've embarrassed myself admitting to writing reading romance novels where there's scenes of that on the back of horses showing move on to the next. Is it um, hot in here? <laughs> only on your end. Uh, um, it's ninety degrees, but that's not what I meant. Okay, the shrieking shack. Uh, one of the parts of the story that we've been discussing, you know, over the past. 14 weeks. Oh my god, we've been doing this 14 weeks. Over the past 14 weeks. It feels like forever, though. It does. It feels like forever and not very long at all. Like, at the same time. It feels like as much as 18. You know, (laughs) one of the themes that we've been talking about is, you know, just the the relationships between the characters, obviously, and especially Remus and Sirius. Right. Are they or aren't they? Arabelle and Jen, you don't know. They wrote it both ways. You can take from anything what you will. Right. It's not specifically stated. I think that this one shot comes probably about as close as you can get without crossing that line. And Mm -hmm. I think what it does that the story itself doesn't is I think it really implies there's more there going on. Yes. And I think it kind of, I'm I'm going to say what Phil would say if he were here. Thank you very much. I think it kind of um, the nice thing about After the End is that it is ambiguous. That you can choose whatever storyline you're most comfortable with. And uh, she's kind of taken away that option here with with this story. So. Uh, yeah, and, and just to be clear, too, it shows these characters being very um, not intimate with each other, but very intimate around each other. And, like, for example, like, I was watching a TV show a few weeks ago, and it's two guys who've known each other for 45 years, and, you know, they, they serve together, you know, they're in the military, and one guy got completely plastered, so the other guy puts his arm around his buddy, you know, takes him back to his quarters, you know, takes his shoes off, puts him to bed, and you can tell that they've been best friends forever, and this is the 500th time he's done this, because that's what friends do. Right. This is more along the lines of the same thing. This is Sirius waiting up all night to check on Mooney to make sure that Remus is all right. And as soon as everything's fine, you know, he goes and gets some breakfast. He comes back out. And, you know, the characters just essentially fall asleep in each other's arms. Right. And it really does imply a, a relationship. And to be honest, I don't care. I think it's great that way. I think that mm-hmm. it's great that it's that way and it's never mentioned. 
I just think that the one thing to note about this outtake is it really does, I think, cross that line and really imply that these characters have something going on. And to be honest, I'm not going to rate it one way or another. I'm just going to say that it's probably the least ambiguous that you're going to get in the story. Yes. Yes. I am. But aside from making it um, absurdly clear what she thinks, or not absurdly clear, but making it clear... Um, where her position is, I there's some great, just some great writing in here. And Ryan, so, <laughs> um, just I love how he comes across as just Ramus comes across as just worn out and drained, you know. And this is one of the best morning after <laughs> um, fix I've read, you know, just because. He's tired, but he's not incoherent, you know, mm-hmm. and um, this seems very likely to me. I, This is one of my more, I like it, but I don't like it. I'm of two minds about it. I, I like that way it was written. I don't necessarily like what it's implying because I would rather make that decision on my own. I'm not saying I'm against Slash because I don't want to get a hundred angry emails <laughs> tomorrow, but... Um, I'm just saying, I, I like that I could choose which way um, I wanted to view it in the after end story itself. So, and I will just say at the end there, you know, I've I've, I've already said this already, and I'm just gonna say like, if yeah, just uh, you know, just repeat it again. You know, I think that it does leave it open ended, but I think it goes, it, it really, it, it doesn't leave a lot of maneuvering room for people to to, to argue that this is just a friendship and not. just gonna leave it at that. Right. Um, let's move on to writing history because that's one of my favorite okay. moments. Um, and it also, yeah. you'll note, has the least reviews of the outtakes, which I think is a shame because it's one of the best written outtakes that that Jenya wrote. And you should go out there and review it and let her know that because everyone do that. We're gonna crash the sugar quill. <laughs> um, All three hundred Potterfic Weekly listeners, yes. just get out there and. And review this story. Well, you say this now, but two years from now, people are going to listen to this, and there's going to be like three million of them, and they're going to be like, what the hell's Lady Chi talking about? Lady Chi can't count. <laughs> 300 current PFW listeners. This is correct. Right. Um, I like so many different things in it. I love the fact, I love the aftermath parts of the story. Mm-hmm. And I love the aftermath uh, parts of the storyline. I love, you know, the, the morning after the battle. I love the, you know, the morning after the war. I, I, okay, so we got Hermione's perspective. Now, look at everything we've learned. And, I, and to be honest, I'm, I feel awful saying this. I'm not sure if this was written after the story, before the story, during the story. I'm, I'm not sure where this came into the into the whole storyline. I'm assuming it was. Um, it was. Hold before, on, I'll go look. I think it was actually before the story because I know that the story was completed in. 2003, and I believe this is like October 2002, so this is probably during the, the writing well, of... August of, of... or July of 2002, so during the writing of... During the writing, okay. Yeah. I think that... I think that you needed to have a beat with one of the characters dealing with how this moment will be remembered. I think that when you look at how every character deals with you know, after the end, how they deal with the day after... They deal with it in terms of how it affects them, the people who didn't survive, how it affects their loved ones, how it affects, 
you know, the immediate surroundings. Nobody really says, how will this be remembered in 50 years? They think that maybe there'll be a Dark Lord again in 50 years. They think that maybe they'll fight then. They think that, you know, maybe their future actions, you know, may influence the, you know, the, 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 the far-off future. They worry about, you know, releasing Malfoy and what that would do to their grandkids and so forth. But no one, to my knowledge, really stops and says, we just witnessed something amazing. And I like that that's Hermione. I like that Hermione is trying to make a pledge with herself to tell the story accurately, to remember it as it happened, warts and all. And I love the fact that this is where we see her glimpsing her children and her grandchildren with red hair. That this is when she's picturing her life with Ron that she, you know, references later on when she's trashed out of her mind. And... I, I just think that's a perfect moment. I love that she marches into Gryffindor Tower, changes the, the password to bloody hell so only Ron can get in. Yeah. And I think that what a great idea to make Hogwarts of History something that you can interactively update. And I love mm-hmm. the fact that Hermione, you know, writes part of Hogwarts of History in her own words to say what happened here in this place that 500 years from now may not even exist and may be forgotten, but she's going to tell the unvarnished truth of what happened yes I I love that I'm going to disagree with everything that you said I love it is Hermione sitting down and purging herself in this way and um, I would be kind of curious to see how how she wrote it you know um, that that's one part of the outtake that we don't get necessarily but I, I suppose we have the information and in after the end but you know, it. Hermione would be the one to do this. You know, yeah. she she would be the one to say, in fifty years, somebody is going to need to know about this. And um, I love the fact that now her brain has switched over from how do we survive to what's next, which is the process that everybody in the story is going through. Yeah. You know, they're getting out of war mode and they're trying to get into normal life mode. And this is her first step in that process. So, it's nice. Yeah, and one thing that we were talking about last week, and it, it's something that Phil brought up, is that, you know, good always wins, but then, you know, at the same time, evil always returns. And you're yes. going to be in this, you know, epic battle forever. This is, you know, kind of like the calm before the storm. The calm might last a hundred years, it might last two, but the battle is never completely over. And there may be a time when, you know, good loses for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that people in the future, people who look back at what these people did at Hogwarts and look back at this time, you know, when, when, when people stood up and, you know, they said to their, you know, grandchildren who haven't been born yet, you, you know this is what happened. This is the awful things that we did. And this is what we sacrificed. And this is why it was worth it. And this is what we screwed up. I think it's important for people always to remember that the people before you didn't do it perfectly and they screwed up and they made things worse for themselves. I just think that's such a great moment in time. You're actually writing history and you as the winner get to decide. She could sit down and write the story about how, you know, the, the, you know, the, the great and noble and brave wizards, you know, from Hogwarts saved the world. That's not the story she's going to write. I'm sure she's going to write the story where she says that there were times when we should have spoken and we didn't. I think that she's going to write. And I think that's, 
the difficult thing of writing history. If Voldemort won, history would have been written so much differently. I, th- I just mm-hmm. th- think that's fascinating. As the winner... You get to write the history. And, and how good of a job will you do? And I don't think there's anyone you can trust more than Hermione to make it fair. To make it fair. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you have Harry writing it, it's too... We didn't do anything. Yeah, we didn't yeah. do anything. And, yeah. If you have Ron writing it, it's too strategical and glorified. Hermione is the happy medium between Harry and Ron in this particular situation. There are other times in the trio dynamic where Ron is the happy meeting between Harry and Hermione, and other times when Harry is the happy meeting between Hermione and Ron. But mm-hmm. in this particular case, Hermione is the perfect person to do this. And um, I think, you know, we can say this about Hogwarts history. We can also say this about, you know, this is what part of the reason that After the End is so great is it hits on relevant issues. Mm-hmm. You know, who we have, we're living in an era where we are losing thousands of World War II veterans every day. Mm-hmm. We're losing thousands of Holocaust victims every day, you know, and. You know, there's so much already been written about that era, but if there hadn't been, yeah. what would have happened? What have, what would have been lost? Yeah. You know, and um, so it, it's a good it's a good thing to say. Yeah, and you just actually brought up an amazing point. Um, I listened to a woman. Her name is Sonia Whites, and she's um, a professor actually at my graduate school, and she is a Holocaust survivor. And uh, I heard, I've heard her speak on the Holocaust many times, and she always closes with, there are people out there who will try and tell you that it never happened after I'm gone. After we're all gone and there's no witnesses left, they will try and convince you that it never happened. Remember that you spoke to me and tell your grandkids. And that's mm-hmm. eventually what it's going to be. The people who fought and the people who made the difference will one day be gone. It's very important to leave something behind. And I think right. that Hermione does an amazing job of that. You know, and a lot of um, a lot of war veterans from that time period and, and Vietnam War veterans, they aren't talking. And I think that that's just a horrible loss. Yeah. You know, we need to... Somebody has to remind, you know, generation after generation, we have to be reminded of what came before. Yeah. Because if we don't know what came before, there's no way to move the future forward. Yeah. And um, we get stuck in this endless cyclical... Just you know, cycle of awfulness. <laughs> I guess it would be a way to put it. Cycle yeah. of awfulness. That's one of me. It's going to be on our talk points. This, yeah. but um, you know, and y- they are making a good point. Phil made an excellent point. Thank you very much. That evil exists because good exists, and vice versa. And there's always going to be this constant struggle. But it's not about you know. Whether you won or not, it's about how you fought, you know. Right. And I think that you know this is a good. I, you know, I there's so much about the end that, at if you read it at a surface level, it's amazing, but if you're reading it at a deeper level, it's profound. And I think this is one of those things that is profound. Yeah. And it's a, it's an it's an essentially simple thing. It was interesting, too, because when we, when we were uh, recording the first episode of the Powerfic Weekly, uh, Rennes' version of the story was the uh, PDF uh, formatted copy, and it actually opens with with this outtake. This is how the story begins. And, really? Uh, yeah. And it was actually funny because uh, I believe Kim and I were co-hosting that episode, and we stopped her because we hadn't read that in a while, and that wasn't what we were advertising, so we were going to hold that till till now. And I'm actually thinking, if, if I had read this first... 
I don't think it would have struck me in the way that it did. I think I needed to go through that story and see what each of these characters went through and then see Hermione do that. I right. think I think that that was a much you know better way to read that. I think it was very important for me to realize what these characters gave up to save the world and, and, and how much it took out of them and why it's important that that be remembered. I just thought, right. just out there, just a little throwing that out there. Um, so I, I definitely want to say, you know, this was um, of Genius uh, Three Outtakes, you know, in terms of what I got out of it, you know, I'll, I'll miss Rose forever. And, you know, I, I thought that, you know, um, the Shrieking Shack was fine, but, th- but this one was just, I just thought this was outstanding. I thought this, I thought right. writing history was just beautiful. And it is beautiful. It's, it's the most profound of the three outtakes. It means the most emotionally. It hits the right emotional notes, I think. I'm going to agree. There you go. Let's move on to Phil's outtakes, which we'll also uh, make available on uh, polarificweekly.com for those of you who wish to read them. Uh, Phil, even as early as today, you know, commented to us that, you know, he he looks at his writing and he cringes, and I have to, you know, find him and ask him what he's smoking and, and if he can get me some at wholesale prices, because <laughs> I, I have no earthly idea what he's talking about. I thought they were both uh, extremely well-written. I... I it, it, it wouldn't occur to me that these aren't part of the after the end universe that these are just what some guy you know wrote on his lunch break they, they seem very relevant and they fill in some missing moments in a very natural way mm-hmm. now why don't we start with alone with his thoughts which is the story of harry driving the dementors back to um azkaban after one right. of his first uh, quidditch tryouts and there is one thing i just want to add because i remember hitting myself after the episode was over because I don't think I mentioned this when Harry jumps in his broom and realizes he's got a dementia to deal with he says okay not again you know and he falls back into war mode and he 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 drives the thing back to Azkaban that implies that he like fought in a war and has done this many times I don't Mm -hmm. know when would he have done this before if he was in school up until the end of the war oh I imagine they were dealing with dementors I don't think this is a first a first-time occurrence, I don't know that he would have dealt with them on this scale, where he's constantly around one for hours and hours and hours at a time. But then again, we weren't giving very much information about the battles before the yeah. final battle. Because war implies more than one battle, you know. Yeah, I got the sense he's driven... Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, th- I got the sense he's driven these things back to Azkaban before. And if you think about it, maybe on his sixth year, going to seventh year, you know, summer break, he encountered a dementor i have no idea but yeah uh, so that was just one question i had um she what do you think of it um of the thick in general um i think i think you know phil um probably has some legitimate criticisms of the way that he written the way that he wrote things but then again he probably has some very illegitimate thing uh, criticisms of the way that he wrote things i think that every author that you will encounter will internally wince at anything they've written more than a year ago and um so you know if you were to uh, for instance Jen is in the middle of reading something that I just completed and I'm very proud of it. But she's going to move on next to a fic that I completed three years ago and I'm not looking forward to it at all. (laughs) So I think that, you know, as we distance ourselves creatively from things, um, their flaws become 
crisp and their good points become kind of fuzzy. And because um, we tend to learn more from the negative things and from the positive things. Um, so, yeah. I think that, you know, he's he's probably got some good points and he probably is smoking some good crack. So There you go. I'm gonna start with his um with, with, with the crack parts. I think that um the amazing thing, you know, in this in this one shot, it, it deals with the particular aspect of Harry and it deals with his guilt. And it frames it around the question, you know, when Harry was about to be killed by Voldemort, when Voldemort was about to fire Avada Kedavra, and Expecto Sacrificum, or Sacrificium, or whatever it's called, had been used um, and apparently did not work, Harry froze. He didn't attempt to dive in front of his friends, he didn't attempt to do anything else, he didn't attempt to fight, he just stood there. Was he surrendering? Was he giving up? Or on some level, did he know that Expecto Sacrificium was going to work? And there was not, there was no cause for alarm, and you know it was that sixth sense that you know it was the magic involved. Everything's going to be fine, and he doesn't know the answer to that. For all he knows, he's a coward who's trying to cover it up to avoid dealing with the pain. And for mm-hmm. all he knows, you know he's being too hard on himself, but he does not know the answer to that. And I think that Harry is the type of person that if he doesn't have the answer, he just assumes he screwed it up. Yeah, um, I think that that's very true. I think that, you know, it doesn't necessarily also deal with um, Harry's guilt. Necess- well, it deals with Harry's guilt, but I think that this is one of one of the great strengths of this is that it shows you how how the Dementors beat you down because they get you in this mindset. And granted, it might be easier for Harry or the- Harry than it is for some other people, but you have to imagine that it's the constant presence of this Dementor messing with his brain that causes him his mind to go down these paths. But it's an interesting character study of Harry. It really is. Now, one thing which I I, I found myself pulled out of the story a little bit, and it was a small thing. There's the moment where Harry, you know, is wondering why this, why now, why are we continuing to have to fight this over and over again? Why can't we just have our lives back? How long are we going to do this for? And he makes the comment to himself, you know, this is the time for us to have parades and fanfare and people, you know, yelling our names. Now, at first I read that, I was I was very, you know, shocked by that. I'm thinking, wow, look what, you know, I could never picture Harry saying, not, you know, against Philip. Okay. I'm just saying, you know, I could never picture Harry saying this, what, you know, with a realistic moment, what, you know, surprise, you know, to, to learn this about the character. And the more I thought about it, he's living at this point with the death of Hagrid, he's living with the death of Cedric, you know, he, he, he he's surrounded by Dementors. There's no way he's going to see himself worthy of that. One thing I would have changed in this if I were a beta, which I'm not, nor do I play one on TV, what I would have done instead is I would have changed that to, you know, this is a time for them to, you know, have parades, and this is a time for all of my friends to be celebrated for what they've done. I I could not see Harry including himself in that group. I just could not see him doing it. I think that he would be intensely embarrassed to be included in that group. Um... I think that what Phil was trying to do, um, that he almost quite, almost but not quite really did, was that he was trying to show you how the Dementors make you think. Because he prefaces this thought with, Harry was exhausted, drained, 
He thought of this morning, or was it yesterday morning, how alive he had felt on the Quidditch pitch, and how for the first time since the war he realized what he wanted to do. And I should have been allowed to do it, Harry said to himself. So I think that, you know, he's he's trying to say Harry would not be thinking these things if he were in his right mind, but because he's in this state, this is what he's thinking. But I still think that it probably would have been better if Harry had, even internally, switched the focus away from himself and back on to... Um, the issue of what he's really feeling guilty about, which is his friends. And, you know, that's absolutely fair. And I think that, and, and I don't want to come across at all, you know, you know, even remotely criticizing it because I think that, you know, aside <laughs> from that, no, I'm serious. I think aside from that one moment is like literally two words there. I was very moved by it. I thought that that's, it really sums up Harry nicely, you know, Harry mm-hmm. and his guilt and, you know, just the way Harry deals with the world. You know, when is it? How many times have we said that? You know, this poor kid, you know, who saves the world and then doesn't get a week off? Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's so much for one person to bear, even if you're used to it. And I think that's the heart of Harry Potter. And, you know, if Harry were ever to, you know, throw in the towel, you know, just based on the way that he feels as though he's treated in life, it would be over that issue. So I definitely... I really love that. I love at the end that Harry's about to make the realization that Ginny, you know, in Expecto Sacrificum, and Ginny really does love him, but he can't because the Dementor's coming at him and the thought gets sucked out of his head. And mm-hmm. I love and I love them, you know, the description of what the Dementors do. They don't kill people, they end them. There's one passage in here that if you have met Phil and you have talked to Phil and you've had the great pleasure of exchanging intellectual ideas with Phil, Phil, ideas with Phil, let me speak like a normal human being, um, there's one paragraph in here that is quintessential Phil because it is profound, it is, the, the sentence, sentence are, sentences are simple and um, it hits really home and I would like to read it out loud. Um, It goes like this. But the truth was, they weren't dead. They survived. Love survived. Love won. Against greed, power, and pain, and suffering, and hate, and fear, and wars, and death. Love won. Because that's what Expecto Sacrificum really was. It was pure, absolute, perfect love. Undying. Eternal. Ron loved him. Hermione loved him. Ramus and Sirius loved him. And Jenny. That's so Phil. We have to have Phil on like every week. Phil, we'll we'll give you dental. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But um, really, Phil, you're getting an A plus from your beta, your unofficial post posting beta reader for that particular passage. That was just that made me. It was like the rhythm of it was almost like a heartbeat. Da dun da, da dun da, which was perfect, you know. Phil's got me all clamped over here. He he does, and um, yeah, and there's some beautiful language in this this story, absolutely beautiful language, and um, a plus Phil. I completely agree. And not even to miss a beat, let's go into um, our last outtake, which is also by Phil, which is healing. And this takes place in the chapter um, directly after Ginny heals Ron at um, the Notch, and you know Ron puts Ginny to bed, and Ron steps out of Ginny's room and goes across the hall into his old bedroom and sits down. And this is when you literally see, through you know Ginny's healing, you see the dam burst, and. Uh, it, 
like it didn't even occur to me until a couple of sentences into the description that literally this is based on what Ginny did. Everything that Ron was holding in for the longest time literally poured out of him, like literally, like you know, not the expression, but just actually picture it: a dam getting a little crack, and all of a sudden, completely, you know, dissolving in the water gushing forward. And mm-hmm. it was so like he cried like he had never cried in his life before, and he hated. But he hated the fact that he hated. And just, mm-hmm. you know, all of these different, you know, the fact that he nearly killed Hermione. You know, the fact, you know, that all of these awful things have happened to this one person. And how do you deal with that? And I think that is, you know, the question of what Ron goes through. When you look at, you know, the, you know, we'll call it, you know, the after the end canon. When you look at the, you know, the main story, Ron's journey is one of anger and forgiveness and devotion and sacrifice you know what you want to do and what feels right to you versus what you will do for someone else because you love them and i think that you know he holds so much in because he has to be so strong for everybody else that jenny allowing him to know that it's okay and that he did it and that even though he may not be as strong as harry or maybe though he may not be as brave as everybody else he is an amazing person he did something great i just i, I feel like i can't even tell you how much i enjoyed this 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 outtake. I thought it was it, it was fantastic. And if you ever insult your writing again, I swear to God, I'm putting you know the best of Phil at the end of the next episode. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, I I would agree. I think that um, Phil. I think it's pretty obvious that Phil wrote this after he wrote the other one, um, because he's experimenting with things stylistically in the first one that he perfects. In this one, well, if not perfects, then gets much closer um, too. And um, he's a couple of things stylistically about this. Um, he's relying mainly on description and language, um, and not so much dialogue and interaction with other people. And um, there's a couple of really brilliant descriptive points in here. Um, there's the point where he's thinking about Jenny, and he's awed. Uh, uh, of Jenny's power, of her ability to do what she did, and she takes he takes a moment and he just takes that in, and that was perfect. And he just kind of, I like how he just kind of goes through everything in his brain, you know, goes through the the sequence of events one more time to come to deal with it by himself before the dam breaks, and it's one word that that makes him break down, and it's Hermione. And I think that's just perfect. And the description of his crying, I was in tears. I was in tears. I. Phil, wow. you made she cry. Yeah, I guess that did suck. <laughs> you, you, um, you melted the rock. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Chi is, in fact, not a rock. I know. I thought that was so funny. Phil had a dream about you the other night, by the way. Ask him about it. That's a little frightening. I thought so, too. Then he told me what the dream was, and I laughed my butt off. So just talk to Phil there. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, oh, I had, I had Chinese food for lunch yesterday, and I thought of you guys. I was going to call you. Oh, I thought, you, like, were, I thought, I thought you were just going to say, I had Chinese food for lunch, and just like leave it at that. Or, <laughs> I was going to call you. I was going to be like, guess what I'm eating? And we're not even podcasting. Oh, okay. God. It's like our official meal here at the party. <laughs> yeah, it oh. is. So 
like I'm feeling melancholy right now because we're we're at the end of after the end, and you know, and Jen is actually kicking down the gate to the Perfect Weekly Studio now, holding up her copy of the X-rated version of the outtake she wanted to discuss tonight, and she's almost past the guard shack, and I think she's actually overpowering the guard. <laughs> all right, that's all I got. She, what else do you have in the outtakes? You got anything? Um, I'm done. Phil made me cry. That's it. I'm emotionally done. <laughs> Phil, do you have any thoughts to share? I'm Phil, back in sunny Sacramento. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give a few comments on a couple of the outtakes and then probably talk about a little bit about my motivations for writing the two outtakes that I wrote. Um, I, I will refrain from reviewing my own outtakes because I'll probably... They say people are, are their own worst critics, and much like Zhenya felt like a lot of after the end was crap, I feel, I feel a little bit like some, some of what I wrote is crap, so hopefully other people disagree with me. Um, but what I wanted to start with was writing history. That outtake is one that not only did I read as I was reading after the end, or possibly right after I finished it. I don't recall if I read that one while I was still reading after the end or if I, if I read it afterwards. But I really liked what it created for Hermione's character. Not so much from the perspective of her creating the new chapter in this book of hers that has been her, her comfort throughout the years, but more from the perspective of, and I talked about this in a previous podcast, but being at Hogwarts on the last day of her last year, there was never a moment that she was allowed to really say goodbye to her school, to her hall, to the common room, to the fat lady, to any of those things that she should have been allowed to say goodbye to. And my favorite part of this particular outtake really doesn't have to do with her writing in in the book. It has to do with her going back into Hogwarts. And yes, cringing somewhat to see that much of it had been destroyed, but then ultimately making her way all the way back up to to her tower and to her room and to her bed and going to this place that fortunately managed to remain untouched even with the huge battle that had just taken place throughout the grounds. And I like the detail in this because it enables the reader to see that there, that she, that Hermione was given this opportunity to say goodbye. And I kind of think of this outtake as that moment, the ability for her to, to go in and to really look at these things that she has looked at for such a long time and to say goodbye to them. And so I, I really enjoyed that, that outtake from that perspective. And one thing I mentioned this, I think, in an email to you was that not only did I enjoy reading this particular outtake, but I took a few elements of it for an outtake of my own that I wrote uh, from Ron's perspective right after chapter 29. And if you read Writing History and then read Healing, which is the name of, of the outtake that I wrote, you'll see that there are, I, I'm not only drawing from After the End itself, but I'm drawing from this particular outtake as well, because I really liked it. It, it, it also 
did a really nice job of demonstrating that surreal moment after things had stopped, after the battle was finally over, after Voldemort had finally been defeated. There, I'm sure for everybody, there were these moments of, okay, well, what do I do now? I mean, it's, it's over. Do, do, do I go and get a beer? Do I, do I go back home? Do, do I cry? Do I, do I laugh? What, what do I do? And just from Hermione's perspective, she was looking around and seeing that each individual person who had survived the battle was in that same state, really. Nobody was laughing. Nobody was crying. Nobody was, was running around like crazy. Everybody was just sort of sitting there in that moment and, and realizing, because I don't think it had sunk in, that it was over. It was truly, honestly over. And it allowed Hermione to sort of sit in that haze almost. And I, I liked it because the, the description of the, the purple fog that was uh, all throughout the grounds and inside the Great Hall and everything, I think that was mirrored sort of in that fog that was in Hermione's head, and I'm sure everybody's heads, when they finally got to this moment where they they where things were over, and they weren't sure what to do yet, and so Hermione almost instinctively, I, I don't, I didn't see her traveling from outside into the castle, up the stairs, into uh, the the common room, and ultimately into her own room. I, I didn't see that as something that she set out to do, really. Uh, I think she just almost instinctively went there. She she thought that, or, or well, let me back up. She she did this very instinctively. She didn't even really stop to ponder about well, do I want to go to this? Do I have to see this? She just sort of ended up there, and that's what I really liked about that. And then when she did begin writing, that's when I think. As she wrote, I believe that that was when these moments and these realizations really came through for her. That, that this was, yeah, this this was it. It was over. And writing the end of Voldemort in that book was was something that really created that finality to it. That really gave her the the true sense that yeah, the war is over, and we did it. We won. And and that's what I like so much about this particular uh, particular outtake. And, of course, when Ron finally does come in, he, as Ron typically does, he tended to lighten the mood, which was nice. He came in and, and made a few jokes, and, uh, uh, but, then, but then expressed his, his true concern that, that he was worried for her because she hadn't told anybody where she was going. And uh, it, it, it has this, this sense of closure and new beginning with it all at once in the last few lines where she literally, you know, is feeling like, well, okay, here we are. Where do we go from here? What do we do? And Ron effectively tells her, well, we start over now. Now we, we, we can live without fear. For the first time, literally in our lives, we can live without fear. And that realization, I think, is what was the catalyst for everything that would happen for the rest of After the End. So... All in all, it was a really good outtake, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, one interesting side note to this, though, is that when on the Yahoo group, 
uh, somebody, I don't remember quite who it was, but somebody put together a printable book form of After the End, and that's what I had used to print out my copy. And whoever it was put this particular outtake at the very, very beginning of the story, even before the prologue. So essentially, if you were a new reader coming in and had not read anything about this story, uh, the first thing you would have read would have been this outtake. And I actually didn't like that very much. As a matter of fact, I, end, I ended up contacting the gentleman who put the book together and asking him, would you mind maybe pulling that out of there and, and then sending me another PDF copy of it? Because obviously from a chronological standpoint, that would be sort of the first thing that would happen in the story. But the way that Arabella and Genya created that story was not to be necessarily linear in its thought. I honestly don't know where I would put this in the story if I was left to make that decision. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's an outtake and not part of the story itself, is that it's it's not something that necessarily fits directly into the context of the story, but it obviously draws from a lot of elements in the story, both before and after, and ultimately makes it a, a really, really good outtake. And it's one that I enjoy uh, a lot. I like, I like revisiting it. I, I don't have it in my copy of After the End, because as I said, I don't really know where it would go, but I like... I like that I like knowing that it exists and I like going to it every once in a while because these little little quips these little bits of of extra stuff are always great uh to to read so those are my thoughts on writing history okay and I realize that I just took almost 11 minutes to talk about one of the, <laughs> of the outtakes so I think I'm just going to talk about one more uh sort of to juxtapose to ju- ju- Jastakipiso's my my feelings on uh, a couple of the outtakes. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the morning after. Uh, it's it's a very short outtake uh, for anybody who's read it, and it uh, relates to Sirius and Remus's relationship. And I have to say, in all fairness and in all honesty, I wasn't all that crazy about this particular outtake, and there's a very good reason why. Uh, as discussed in earlier podcasts and on the forums and in the Yahoo group and anywhere else from anybody who's ever read After the End, there's always been this speculation about Remus and Sirius and the nature of their relationship. There are some people who feel that they have a a very, very strong friendship. There are some people who feel that they have a lot more. And one thing that I I like about this story, I like about After the End, is that it never really flat out tells you anything. There are these moments that you can read, and I know now having spoken to Genya about it a little bit, that they were very deliberate in not specifically pointing anything out. It's not like one day Sirius woke up and went down and told Harry, yeah, Remus and I are gay, and we're in a relationship. Because if that had happened then it would remove a lot of of what the reader can take away from this relationship. And I think it's very possible for two people to have a relationship that is very close, uh, that goes beyond friendship in many ways, but doesn't necessarily get into, uh, into a full-blown relationship status. And I know that this outtake, uh, that being the morning after, also does not specifically say anything about a relationship, but it comes a lot closer 
than anything in After the End does, uh, pointing in a specific direction. And I actually didn't like that. Not because I'm opposed to Remus and Sirius being in a relationship per se, but I guess what I was opposed to was having it literally spelled out for you. And I think that's kind of what this outtake does. It's, it's difficult to read this outtake, especially reading the last few lines where they lay down together. And uh, I believe it's uh, Remus that puts his arm across Sirius's chest. And you can, you can sort of visualize the two of them laying there together. Uh, I just kind of feel like that was taking it further than it needed to go for the reader's sake. I, I think it was pointing out some things that didn't necessarily need to be directly pointed out. I think it's great that the reader can draw their own conclusions from the more subtle things that happen in After the End itself. And upon reading this, I I know that Arabella and Genia had said that they very deliberately didn't say what type of relationship that Remus and Sirius had. But after reading this particular outtake, I feel like it's pretty obvious. It's pretty clear. And, and it's possible that that maybe they'll they'll come back and say no 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 it's not clear because we we didn't say specifically even even in this outtake and 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 that's true they they don't specifically say but it does really seem to point in that direction and and for that reason i i wasn't all that crazy about this particular outtake i i liked the way that it started because i enjoyed reading about this relationship that they did have which was a very, very close relationship. Like I said, it's, it's far beyond friendship. It, it goes much deeper. You can't just say that, that Remus and Sirius are friends. I mean, obviously that word doesn't do their relationship justice. But I, I did feel kind of like by the time I got to the end of this one that a little too much had been spelled out for me. And I kind of like that ambiguity in After the End where I was able to draw what I felt was my own conclusion about their relationship based off of what I had read. And then other people were able to draw their own conclusions and everybody gets to have their own personal interpretation. And I thought that was actually quite cool. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not my favorite outtake. It's short. I, I like the descriptive uh, language in it. I, I like the visuals in it. Um, I liked the, the intensity of, of Sirius's, feelings in it and obviously he's a very intense person and it shows in a lot of ways the yin and the yang of of remus and sirius in that sirius tends to be the one who's more you know passionate and 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 loud and 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 barking literally in this story um but yeah and 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 remus you know opposed to that is the more calming influence he's the quieter one he's the one that doesn't get as excitable and I, I really like those elements of it. I just kind of wish that it had not been quite so, I guess, obvious. It would be the best word to come up with there in its depiction of their relationship. Because it is it is kind of difficult when you come in and you read this outtake. It is kind of difficult to leave this outtake, go back to after the end and think maybe they maybe they aren't in a relationship. Because it's it's pretty pretty well spelled out. I mean, anybody who, who reads this particular outtake will probably at least be suspecting that a lot more than they were when they started reading the story. So I kind of like the ambiguity. I kind of like drawing my own conclusions there. And I'm kind of getting repetitive at this point. So I will say that that is, that is how I feel about uh, the morning after. 
So, okay, I wanted to talk a little bit also about uh, the motivation that I had behind writing the two outtakes that I did. And I wanted to start by saying that at no point in reading this story did I make really a, a conscious decision to to go and write some outtakes for it. Uh, I, I didn't sit down one day and say, there, there's not enough being told here. I need to tell more or anything like that. The, the outtakes just sort of formed kind of organically in my brain based off of just a few little questions that I had up, upon reading the chapters. The first outtake was one called Alone with His Thoughts, and it's a hairy perspective outtake that takes place during the... It's really, it's really just a slice of time during the two days that Harry is chasing the Dementor up the northern coast to return it from whence it came. Uh, and I, I wrote it because in the story itself, and this is not in any way to say that there, I feel there was anything left out. I, I actually kind of enjoyed the fact that the story had Harry leaving the Quidditch pitch with his map and saying to himself that this was going to be a long two days. Uh, and then arriving at the prison a couple days later and essentially dropping the Dementor off. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to explore with this one was, well, we've seen, we saw Harry leave and we saw Harry land, but we didn't really spend any time with him during those two days. And God only knows what must have been going through his mind during this time and how affected he must have been by being that close to the Dementor for that period of time and having nobody to talk to and nothing to do but literally be there alone with his own thoughts. And so, and, and on top of that, having to cast a Patronus charm over and over and over again to basically force the Dementor to go where he wanted it to. And so I, I wrote this outtake. It's very short, but I wrote this outtake as just sort of a little slice of the impact that this time was having on him. Uh, it started with him thinking about Ginny and thinking about the gift that, uh, that she had given him and especially thinking about the letter that she had given him that literally just said, I am here, uh, which, which was understatement uh, in its, its perfect form. I mean, I think that that, that that letter was just right. Instead of being a four-page love letter, it essentially just said, I'm here. And we talked about this before, but I really, I really liked the impact that that had on Harry. And as, as I was writing this, I was realizing that he was trying to hold on desperately, or must have been trying to hold on desperately to whatever good thoughts he could, he could muster in his brain. But that as the time was going on, it was getting harder and harder and harder to do so. And at a certain point, he must have just gotten so fed up with what he was having to do, even though the war was over, even though they had won, even though Voldemort had been defeated. Here he was, and, and he was still doing these things. He was still sacrificing himself, and so were his friends. And I wanted to sort of reflect in Harry these emotions that he's been keeping sort of bottled up. I think we've all agreed in talking about this in the past that, that uh, A.T.E. Harry is uh, not very open with his feelings. 
he doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time telling everybody else, I'm mad about this, or this upsets me, or this makes me, makes me angry. Uh, he tends to keep it inside. And so here he was flying completely by himself and essentially talking to himself. And I kind of envision Harry doing this, you know, not necessarily lashing out at other people all that often, but instead in his own mind, these thoughts will come up and he'll answer them and he'll talk to himself and he'll get angry and he'll get frustrated, but he still feels like it's his burden to bear. He doesn't feel like it's appropriate for him to go to other people and say, hey, this really sucks and I'm really upset about this. So this was him by himself for a couple of days. And he, it's sort of a mix of emotions that he goes through. He has these moments where he's thinking about Ginny. He's thinking about his friends. He's thinking about the things that, that, that are good in his life. But unfortunately, and, and maybe it's just from being so close to the Dementor for two days, it's very difficult to hold on to any of those good feelings. And, and he needs those good feelings in order to cast a Patronus. But as, as the time wears on, it just gets more and more difficult to, to hold on to any of those memories. And the ones that he does bring up uh, in his mind are just barely enough to allow him to cast the Patronus and then seem to just escape right away. And I, I guess if I had one quintessential line that I sort of built this outtake around, uh, it was the line about halfway through when he asks himself, why the hell am I still fighting? And, and that must have been how he felt because it, I, I know when I read the story and when I got to the end of, of chapter 10 and Harry was finally getting his life back, he was uh, uh, trying out for the cannons and it looked like he had a really good shot of making that team and things were going along really well. And he was starting to show those sparks again of, of the Harry Potter who could be happy, who could enjoy something. And lo and behold, here comes a Dementor, as if, as if a physical reminder of the life that he was trying to, to leave behind him. And it made me mad. I remember getting angry about it. So there's probably a lot of my own personal emotion in this particular outtake, just because it, uh, it, 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 I just don't see how, how Harry could not get angry about this. And the thoughts come into his brain faster than he can filter them. And it makes it very hard for him to to stay focused on what he needs to. And um, you kind of have to read the whole story uh, and then go back and look at this outtake because there, near the end there, there is a line that comes from much later in the, in the story. But uh, it, it has to do with Hermione and how her voice came crashing into his mind because uh, the he, without realizing it because he had been thinking about Ginny and about uh, Expecto Sacrificum and, and the fact that, that he knew for a fact that all these people loved him. But he just, especially in Ginny's circumstance, he just wasn't able to accept it. And that's, that's something that I think is important in this story because we've all said many times that Harry knows for a fact that Ginny loves him. And while that's true, and I've always felt that that's to be true, he, he knows on a logical level that Expecto Sacrificum would not have worked had Ginny not loved him. And it would not have worked had Ginny not loved him in the way that she loved him. Uh, 
So yes, he did know that she loved him. That that was never really in question. But there's a difference between knowing something and accepting it. And I think he's still, at least at this stage in the story, was still very much in that area of just thinking, no, that it, that can't be. You know, I mean, the, 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 she she can't love me in that way. There's just I, I just can't accept that. And that's why I put that moment in there where he was uh, thinking about the spell and really thinking about it and uh, coming to the conclusion that, that Ron loved him and Hermione loved him, Remus and Sirius. And then he got to Ginny and he thought, well, you know, maybe this means something. And, and just as he was starting to come to that conclusion, uh, that's when the Dementor unfortunately got a little too close to him and brought on the dark thoughts and distracted him completely and did not allow him to fully think about it. So he never really comes to the conclusion that he really needed to come to, uh, at least not at this time, because there's just there just isn't time for it at this stage. So that was really my motivation for writing that one. It, it was all basically born from from a question that came up in my mind of, God, I wonder what, I wonder what Harry was going through over those two days. So this was just sort of my quick take on what he what he went through during okay and now we come to healing which was the name of the other outtake that i wrote uh this one uh i put a, a lot more into i think uh than i did alone with his thoughts uh, alone with his thoughts was pretty much the first thing i had ever written in terms of fanfic and at that time i i wanted it to be brief and i wasn't even sure i deserved to be able to write it let alone post it anywhere so um, I was, I was, you know, understandably nervous about it. I, I felt a little more comfortable with healing and, and I felt that there was more to say with healing than, than with the first outtake. And I, I, I wrote it because reading chapter 29, which is affectionately titled the really late, very long chapter from hell or, or the very late, really long chapter from hell. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed reading that session that Ginny and Ron had together because it was a, a moment of extreme closeness and it was a moment where Ron opened up in a way that he had never in his life opened up before and revisited memories that he had been spending the better part of a year trying as hard as he could to force out of his mind. And I really felt like in reading that, that Ginny made it okay for Ron to, to think about these things. You know, he, he had, he had so much guilt in his mind over what he had done, uh, in particular in, in using the killing curse and killing Bellatrix Lestrange. Um, even though, even though he had said earlier in the story to Hermione that he would kill anything that tried to hurt her, I really don't know that he meant it. And, and it was, it was a wonderful thing to say, and it made Hermione feel very good, and that was great. But he, he, you, you realize later in the story that he has such unbelievable guilt over what he had done that it must have consumed him at a certain point and forced him to try not to think at all about what had happened, not even so much from the perspective of him being captured or him being tortured, but more from the perspective of, what he had to do in order to save the people that he cared about. 
And so that's why I wrote this outtake, uh, because it tells of the after effects of the healing session from Ron's point of view. Um, a lot of people, when they are, when they have a traumatic experience in their life, they will go to some form of counseling or they'll talk to people about it and they have these breakthrough moments. And after the breakthrough comes, it becomes much easier for them to think about and to deal with the things that had happened to them. And I really think that that's what Ginny's healing session with Ron did for him. And that's why I wrote this, this outtake from his perspective, because I can't quite imagine what it would be like the moments following something like that, where you get to that point where you realize that, that you've had this breakthrough and, and all these feelings are welling up in you and you don't know what to do with all of them. So he, he ended up just walking down the hall and sitting on the edge of his, of the bed that was in his, his old bedroom. And for, for several minutes, just sort of being in, in a fog, just sort of being almost numb in, in this sense of my God, what, what in the world just happened to me and uh, enabling him to, to really stop and think about all the things in his life and everything that had led up to the moment of his capture and to, and remembering Hermione going in alone to try and, and save him. And, and of course she ends up getting captured and, and he is under a curse that is forcing him to do things that, that he doesn't want to do. And she's pleading with him to, to, uh, to, to, to help her, even though he's under the imperious and he's, he's supposedly, uh, supposed to be doing the things that he's being ordered to do. And the, the fact of the matter is, and from my perspective, I always thought that Ron kind of hated himself for what he ended up having to do, uh, during that circumstance, even though he knew consciously knew that it was the right thing to do consciously knew that it was the only way out and that this was a war and that in order to save the people that he cared about, most importantly, Hermione, he had to do what he had to do. But still there was, there was that sense of guilt from it. And the, the memories of something traumatic don't ever really go away. Anybody who's been through a traumatic experience knows that, that that the the memories, I think I say it in the in the outtake, the memories are as vivid as as the day that it happened, and they always will be. But what Ginny had done for him was make the feeling so so much different for him. He was able to finally see it for what it was. And he was able to to come to terms with the fact that this is what needed to happen, and I did what I had to do, and I, I can stop hating myself for it now. I can I can start I can move on with my life and I can know that I did the thing that I needed to do under the circumstances. And he not only comes to that realization, but I also think at that point he would kind of come to a realization that if this ever did happen again, if I was ever in a circumstance like this again, I would do the same thing. And I don't know that he had thought that before, even though he had told Hermione that that he would protect her with his life and he would kill anything that tried to hurt her. I'm not sure how much of that he believed himself. And I think after this healing session, it would enable him to, to, to approach that from, from that mind, uh, from that standpoint of, yeah, I really would. I, I would, I would protect her 
with my life. And um, I actually threw in a, uh, a reference to another outtake uh, in, this, in this outtake that I wrote um, about uh, when Ron made Hermione promise to not let anything happen to her. And at the same time, making a promise to himself to always keep her safe, no matter what, because he, he knows that he would never survive without her. And that's when, at that point, the emotions just sort of take him over and he allows himself to do something that he really hadn't allowed himself to do, really not fully, uh, before this point. And that was he allowed himself to cry and really, really cry, just, just fall over bury his face in the pillow and cry. And, and not just for the sad things that happened, not just for the, for the tragedies and for the, the, the horrors, but for all the good things as well, for all the things in his life that he still had. And that's, that's kind of my motivation for, for writing this particular piece. Um, I also wanted to throw that little scene with, with Ron and Harry at the end there, because, um, you know, in, in this point in the story, there's a lot of heavy stuff going on, and I tried to add in sort of a lighter moment, uh, just having having these two best friends who were who were living on their own uh, share a moment, uh, even even if it was just a, a few minutes of of quiet and calm and and enjoy each other's company a little bit. Uh, Ron teases Harry about joining the Cannons and then quitting, and uh, forces him to promise that he will go back to the team someday which I think is Harry's ultimate plan. I've always thought that that was his ultimate plan. Um, but I, I just sort of scrawled it out there. And uh, yes, I, I threw a song in there. Um, <laughs> the the tune, and, and, and I actually posted the song, a little clip of, of Moonlight Serenade um, to the Yahoo group in case anybody hadn't heard it before. Um, in my opinion, quite honestly, uh, it doesn't get better than that song. When, when you have Glenn Miller's orchestra and they're playing Moonlight Serenade. It's just about one of the most beautiful pieces of music you could ever hope to hear. And also there's the wink, wink, nudge, nudge in there about the fact that this is the night of a full moon. So that's, yeah, that's why I put that in there as well. Um, and and I wrapped it up with with Ron coming to the conclusion that he, he really was going to be okay. You know, these things that had happened to him, and and Ginny working with him and and helping to heal him, uh, he he came to that to that conclusion that you know what he's he's going to be all right, and from now on he he's going to feel so much better just because he was able to get this burden off of him and to understand that that it's okay to feel uh, feel good about things and to be happy again and and to you know to understand that he would never forget the things that happened. But to know in his heart, to really know that he made the right decision and that he can live with that decision because uh, everything happened the way that it was supposed to uh, at that time. So, so there's that. Um, once again, Ryan, feel free to choppity chop chop as much as you'd like. Uh, and if it, I will say, if anybody has uh, any questions or anything about, about what I wrote or if anybody thinks it's pure crap, they're welcome to, uh, to contact me and let me know. Um, and that's it. I'm up to 36 minutes here. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut this one off and, um, just say that, oh, well, okay. I'm going to add one more thing in here. Final, final thoughts on after the end. Uh, I mentioned in last week's podcast that 
the greatest thing about this story is the potential that it showed for these characters. And uh, I will say again that the fact that this is a character piece really is what makes it as good as it is. Um, my favorite stories in general are stories where characters show personal growth. Um, an example uh, that I can bring up from the movie world is um, there's a movie called American Graffiti, which was George Lucas's first movie, well, well before the Star Wars films. Uh, he made this movie called American Graffiti. And I really enjoy that movie quite a, quite a bit. But if you watch it, you realize that from a plot perspective, virtually nothing happens in that movie. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's a movie about the last night of summer for a group of kids who have just left high school. And almost nothing happens in that movie in terms of plot. And the things that do happen are very inconsequential. But what makes that story so good is that it is a character piece. It shows from a, from a character perspective the growth and the change that these, that these people go through, the decisions that they make, the people that they choose to leave behind, the people that they choose to stay with. And, and after the end, in my, my mind, is very much like that. Um, it, the, the, the plot that happens, and I, I feel that, that the plot in, in After the End is actually quite good. The action that takes place when it needs to is is very well thought out, very imaginative, and I really enjoy some of the the things that happen in the story from a from a plot perspective. But what really makes me love this story as much as I do is the character growth, the 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 inner uh, uh, decisions that these that these people make, the realizations that they come to, the the growth that they that they have really makes this story just just fantastic. And I I got to be honest, I said in last week's podcast, and I listened to myself say it, that uh, I didn't think the story was perfect. And um, yeah, I lied. I, I think it's just about as perfect as anything could be. I, I really do enjoy it. I love it. I'm thrilled beyond belief that I got a chance to discuss it with some other people who enjoyed it, uh, hopefully as much as I did. And um, final thoughts, uh, I... I look forward to revisiting this story again uh, sometime down the road when I'm emotionally prepared to start it over from the beginning and uh, looking very much forward to, to moving into the, to the next fic. So that's about it, and uh, I will talk to you in the future. Okay, Phil, when I said you have any thoughts to share, I thought you, you were going to say no. Um, to be honest with you, I really didn't actually think you were going to... I thought it was one of those, like, hey, how are you? And you don't expect the person to say gout things. I thought it was one of those. Um, no, I wouldn't kidding. got popcorn, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I actually sold my house. I bought a condo. Phil, nice. Phil, we're kidding. Like, seriously, my God, you're the best. And I don't even... I, I don't even want to tell you guys what file Phil sent with that, you know, just to help us out editing this. Phil is the man, and Phil is welcome here anytime, and I can't wait to have him back on, even though you guys are going to hear him next week, and I hope he'll, he'll come back a lot. Yes. Uh, after the end is over. After the end is ended. After there's the no end. more after of after the end. There's nothing after after the end of after the end. No. No. It's very sad. So. Chi, final thoughts on after the end. Um. Hmm. I had a great speech planned out for this. But Phil made um, me cry. Phil, Phil made me cry. Um, I think that.
this is important. Um, it's great that we covered it first because, A, it's important in fandom history. And if you ever read anything um, about uh, how things were going down in 2001 and 2002 and 2003 when this was being written, um, everybody regardless of who you were or what you were doing or what ship you were shipping was reading after the end. And it was kind of a fandom unity thing. Um, I think that, so it's important in that way. It's important in that it set a standard very high for um, big name fans. And we really, after after the end is, is over, we don't have very many. You know, there's no big post um, Order of the Phoenix or post Half-Blood Prince. There's no there's nobody that really came to the forefront of the fandom in the way that this fic did. Um, it's, it was a big deal uh, in getting the Sugar Quill started, which is huge in the um, Ron and Hermione shipping world. It, I mean, it, was, it did so much for the fandom um, in general. Um, so regardless of whether or not I think it's the best fic ever written, um, I, I will say it's one of the most influential fix written and nobody can really call themselves a Harry Potter fandom fan fiction writer until they've read it and um, that's quite an accomplishment mm-hmm. so that's my first thoughts I'll turn the microphone over to you Ron, uh, Ryan and just let whatever, you know. whatever your name is <laughs> I'm sorry I called I have toddlers I called Reed Bobby today all day <sighs> it was bad news um, but I'll turn the I'll um, turn the microphone over to you, Ryan. You can give some more thoughts, and then I'll give my thoughts on the story itself. Okay. Uh, you know, like I feel bad because we're airing these things a little bit out of order. Um, Phil and Jen gave um, amazing um, speeches on why this fic is so meaningful to them as people and how you know it's literally impacted their lives. And I've been kind of thinking about that for a while. This is basically the the fic that cemented me in the fandom you know when i decided i wanted to do this podcast this is the first fic i thought of um i want to say that you know the the writers of this story and the betas and everyone who was involved with it are some of the most gracious people i've ever met you know in in this community i just think i just want to just number one thank them for you know everything they did to help us and participate in this podcast over the past 15 weeks and um i don't it's it's one thing to write you know a, a fan story to kind of you know support you, you know uh, you know a, a, a series or you know a story that you, that you truly enjoy that someone else has created it's one thing to take that canvas and, and build such a deeply layered story that essentially reinvents everything that came before it in such you know beautifully written way and I I could go on here forever, but I just think it's it, it it's just it's it's absolutely tremendous what Arabella and Genia and all of their you know beta writers accomplished, and I can never read the canon without thinking you know what after the end you know has brought to my perspectives on these characters, and I just I can't say enough good things about the story um, or the people who wrote it. Yes, there. Um it's been a pleasure to um, work with everybody at, at Potter Fic Weekly. Um, Ryan is just the nicest guy you'll ever meet, and Phil is very insightful, and Jen is so sweet, <laughs> and you know Ren is very funny. And it was been it was a great experience for me to do the podcast. I hope you'll have me back, and um, 
and to discuss. You're back this. next week, aren't you? <laughs> I, I, I think I am. Am I? Uh, am I? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think. She will um, be back in. Yeah. yeah, I. I don't think you can get me. You, you couldn't keep me away. Um, <laughs> I. I. Um, after the end, in and of itself, it, it's. Um, it's quite a piece of work. It's something to be proud of. I think. You know, I wouldn't. It's the Bible of the Harry Potter fan fiction world, and um, the characters in it are amazing. The language in it is amazing. Um, they had a great team of authors, beta readers, um, moderators, editors. Everybody that was involved in the project um, has my complete um, respect. There's not one of them that I don't think um, doesn't deserve all the attention that they've gotten from the fandom. And I think that. It, you know, this is, uh, it's impacted other people's lives in, in very serious ways. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it changed my life because I'm not the big fan that Phil and Jen are, but, um, it did get me writing. This is the, this is the fic that, that, um, made me decide I wanted to write. So, I've never shared that before, but there you go. That's it. <laughs> there, was a, there was a beautiful moment. I feel so close to you right now, Chi. <laughs> well, I, I try to downplay um, how big of a fan I am because I don't want to seem like... A fanboy like me? <laughs> no, you're cute. I If I do it, I come across as fake. I try to be genuine, but... Well, in the spirit of being uh, completely genuine, I want to thank you so much for jumping in here and helping us. You started off as someone who sent us in a voicemail, and you've jumped in and you've helped co-host all these episodes, and you're definitely a part of the team. And we're going to have you back lots, you know, starting next week. And um, I want to thank everyone for listening. uh, And stay tuned for our interview with Arabella and Jenny next week, where you're going to hear lots more gushing and also a lot of information on how this fic was written. Don't miss it. And uh, in two weeks' time, we're going to be starting the seventh Horcrux by Melinda Leo, which I literally can't wait to do. Now, you know, uh, she just referenced After the End as the Bible. So as we uh, leave tonight's episode, I would just like to leave you with the following words. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. (laughs) Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Goodbye, everybody. I love you. Where, um, what was the last thing you heard? Um... It's nothing about you. You'd done the same thing when you were dating Danielle. Started to date Danielle. Yeah, I'm sure like... Oh, poor Ryan. Oh, I'm so tired. Okay, let me back up again. My brain's like turning so much. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, email us at staff at potterfickweekly.com. Or, if you have a question or comment for a specific host, email Ryan, Lady Chi, or Phil at potterfickweekly.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 781-352-0643. We'll try and incorporate your comments on the future episodes of the show. Remember, the voicemail box length is two minutes, so if your voicemail is long, you may have to call in more than one time. Alternately, you can use the Gizmo Project to send us a voicemail. Just call username Potterfic Weekly and leave a message at the tone. The service is free, and all you'll need is your microphone. 
please join our forums at potterfickforums.com. We'd love to get to know you. Have a great day, folks.